And uh, each table should have a discussion sheet. Um, we like to mix in teaching with discussion. And we've got, I think, just about every leader out today except for like two or three, I believe. So um, we're going to get to discussion in a moment. But if there's not a intern or volunteer at your table, then that means... Uh, a student who feels like they can help lead a discussion can grab the discussion sheet and be the person that can do that. Um, we are thinking on that is, you know, Jesus chose the disciples when they were teenagers, and so I think you guys can lead a discussion at a table, right? That should be fairly easy to do. Um, so we are in the middle of a series, actually at the end of a series. Today is a second to last week in the series called Ask Anything. And what happened was last December... A bunch of you guys nominated questions for us to answer, and then you guys voted on the questions. We did a top 10, did a countdown from number 10, and so today we're at number two, and next week's going to be number one. So um, the question we're answering today is, this is a question that, that someone in the room asked, and many of you voted to answer this question as well. The question is, how do I help when a friend suffers? How do I really help someone when they're going through trials and suffering of various kinds throughout their life. And so what I want you to know this morning, though, is that I'm extremely proud of the questions that you guys asked for this series because, honestly, I was expecting to get a lot of theoretical questions. We got some of that. I was expecting lots of questions that were like theoretical, just curiosity questions. But your last two questions are all about community. How do I really help someone? that's a brother or sister in Christ. And so that's this question. Next week's question is a little bit more, little bit more negative, but it's still community-based. And it's, the question next week is going to be, um, how do I confront a, a Christian brother or sister who's walking in sin? Like, what do I do when my friend is walking and living in sin, and they're a believer and I'm a believer? How do I respond to that? And so what I love about your questions were the, the top two questions that you guys asked were questions that relate to community. How do, I, how do I best live out what it means to be a believer in the body of Christ? And how do I live out um, these things in, in the church? And so um, recently, in the last year, I would say, we've had several things happen, whether it be near or distant to this youth group. But um, suffering happens all the time. You guys know this as, as truth. And I'd say about a year ago, or less than a year ago, I should say, the, um, there was a girl at Temple High who lost her mother to a car accident. Mom went to go get some subway, and she was killed by a drunk driver in the middle of the evening. It wasn't even late. It was like 8 o'clock in the evening on a Saturday night and killed off of uh, an, an avenue just north of here. And that happened this past year. Um, we know of a boy who died last year. Um, at Michaela's school and Ashland school. Um, Shane uh, was also killed in a car wreck last year, last summer. And then, of course, more recently, we all know about the accident happening in South Temple, and a young man is still um, in a coma in, in uh, Scott and White Hospital, Fabian Vargas, and be praying for him. And he, he also lost his mother and his aunt in that car accident as well. And so suffering happens and it happens randomly, but it happens. We see it happen all around us. But here's what most of us do when someone that we know is going through suffering. Most of us, I think, tend to avoid the person going through suffering, don't we? Because we're scared. We're scared of, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? How, I don't know what to say. This, this kid lost his, 
his, his mom or his dad or this, this horrible thing happened, how am I going to help this kid? How am I really going to help their situation? And so most of us don't really know how to help, and so we tend to avoid them like they have some kind of a disease for a while. I mean, it's, it's true, like when a kid returns back to school after a tragic event, like say um, a girl's mom dies, and there's a, a week of mourning or so, and then when she gets back to school, what probably happens? I'm sure many people almost avoid her and act like, I don't know what to say, I'm not sure what... I don't want to mess this up. I feel bad of what happened. I don't know how to communicate that, and so I don't know what I'm going to do, and I'm just going to not talk to her for a while. And so most of us try to avoid because we're scared. But some of us, we might say some things, which is helpful, but some of us get into like what I would call hollow encouragement. We'll go on Facebook and we'll post things like, hey, man, keep your head up, or hey, man, uh, just don't let it get, get you too down. I mean, which I guess can be helpful. It's good to know that they know that you care but I would say that kind of encouragement is not what I would call gospel-centered, Christ-centered encouragement that I think I would say is, is, what, is the full gamut of what Jesus wants you to do with that person. On the other hand, there are some people in the room this morning, you've been on the other end of the equation, and you're, you're the one that has suffered. You're the one that has suffered in your life. Maybe it's recently. And you're the person that won't let people help you. You're the person that won't allow people to come to your aid. You're the person that won't. Um, you keep people at an arm's length, and you say things like, no, 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 it's okay. It's all right. I'm, I'm okay. And you don't want people to speak into your situation. Recently, I had a friend. I've got a friend that I basically grew up with named Paul uh, Feeney back on the East Coast in Virginia, and we played soccer together. We went to church together. We did everything together, and I came to Texas at the age of 19, so we have grown somewhat apart, but every time I go back home to Virginia, I still see him at least once and go have dinner somewhere with some other friends of mine that I grew up with. And this past summer, I was in Virginia seeing my parents, and so me and two of my friends, Paul is one of those friends, went out to dinner at a restaurant, and um, we're talking, just hanging out and doing our normal thing and having a conversation, and then um, here we are. I guess this past January, I'm on Facebook. I go, I'm at the men's conference here at the church. I go to Facebook, and my friend Paul, he posts on Facebook, I lost my dad today. And it hit me because I thought, is he referring to his father-in-law maybe? Like maybe he's referring to him as his father? What in the world? So I called my other friend, who I know knows him really well too, and I said, this other guy's name is Paul as well. It gets kind of confusing. I said, Paul, what's up with Paul? <laughs> and he says, he says, well, his dad's had cancer for months, and he just died uh, today. And they knew it was coming. And I'm thinking, I just had dinner with them in s- summertime. His dad had cancer when I had dinner with him. He mentioned nothing to me about this. Didn't even talk about it. And then our other friend Paul told me, he said, yeah, he's kind of been that way the whole way through, that even though I see him regularly, he won't even talk about it with me that much. He he just won't go there. And so there are the people who you've suffered, but you won't let people help you. And so this message is for both groups of people. And so, so the question is, how do you help when someone suffers? And I would say this, that it depends on the kind of suffering they're going through. I want you to see four kinds of suffering 
that um, are in Scripture this morning. The first one is what I would call general suffering. This results from Adam's sin. This results from the fall. This results from the fact that we live in a sinful and fallen world. So you walk out of your house and a bird poops on your head, right? So bad things just happen as a result of the fall. We live in a fallen world, and it's, it's, it's why things frustrate you. It's why things happen in life. You're just like, why does that have to happen? Every Monday, that has to happen. And, and it, it, we live in a fallen world, and so some things are just general suffering resulting from Adam's sin. Consequential suffering is resulting from your sin. This would be things like, all right, if you smoke and you get lung cancer, there's a correlation there. Or if you drink lots of alcohol, get behind the wheel of a car, and you kill someone, that's consequential suffering. Or um, the list goes on and on. But if, you're, if you spend lots and lots of your money on crazy things, credit card debt, and now you're in debt, there's a built-in judgment with that. There's consequential suffering as a result of things that we do to ourselves. Then there's victim suffering. This is resulting from someone else's sin. This is mom and dad get divorced, and you've got nothing to do with it, but it causes you to suffer. And for some, it causes you to suffer immensely. This is mom is an alcoholic and spends all of her money on alcohol, and as a result... I suffer as her child because I have no money to buy clothes for school. Consequential suffering or victim suffering. And the last suffering is what I would call disciplinary suffering. This is not to punish you, but to mature you. Go to my next two slides, Anthony. You're, you're, you're behind me there, bud. Uh, not to punish, but to mature. This is what I would call, um, this is not like someone has sinned, therefore God's punishing them. This is just we're all, we're all fallen and unrighteous, and God wants to shape and mold all of us. This is what Job experienced in the book of Job. We'll cover that in just a moment as well. And so your response to someone else's suffering is going to be different based on the kind of suffering they're going through. So, for example, consequential suffering. If someone's suffering as a result of their own sin directly, I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for their suffering situation but you should also pray for their repentance as well. So, for example, if, if your friend calls you and says, um, you need to pray for me because I was sneaking out of my house last night to go see my boyfriend, and I cut my hand on the window. So can you pray for my hand? And you're like, I'll pray for your hand, but also for your soul because you're living in sin right now. So this is, this is consequential suffering. And the way you approach it as a friend is going to be different based on the kind of suffering that they're going through. And so today we're going to focus more on the general suffering, victim suffering, and disciplinary suffering. We'll discuss consequential suffering more. Next week we'll discuss how do you confront someone who's walking in sin. But today um, we'll deal with those three. So before we address how to respond to someone's suffering, I think it's always helpful to talk about how not to respond. I think you can learn a lot about how to respond by talking about how not to respond first. So you get that part nailed down first. Then we discuss how you actually should respond in these situations. So I want to bring your attention to the book of Job. Don't turn there, but just I'm going to summarize that for us. So if you guys know the story of Job, Job was a man in the Old Testament. He was righteous. 
and, and faultless and blameless before God. Now, everyone's a sinner. I'm not saying he wasn't a sinner. But when it comes to Scripture, Scripture defines him as a righteous man, meaning he had his faith placed in God. And he was trying to live that out in his life and in his family. And what happened was Satan came to God. And so we see this conversation in the beginning of the book where Satan says to God, he says, yeah, you know Job? You know your servant Job? Well, you know he's only righteous because of what you've done for him. Because Job was a wealthy man. He had this large family, had a lot of livestock. Had a, he was a very wealthy man. And so Satan said, he's only faithful to you, God, because of what you've given him. And God says, oh, yeah? Okay. Well, how about you test him, Satan? To which I'm sure Job was like, no, no, right? And so God says, okay, Satan, test him, but you can't, you can't kill him. You can take everything else away, but you can't kill him. And so Satan goes after it, and Satan brings all these horrible things into Job's life and basically kills his family, takes his, his, his home, takes his livestock, takes all of his wealth. And at the end of all that, Job says, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He's able to say that after he's lost everything. And so then Satan goes back to him again. And back, back to God again and says, okay, well, if you let me mess with his health. Because people always say things like, whenever you're going through a trial, people always say things like, well, at least you got your family. Or at least you got your health. At least you have that going for you. But Job couldn't even say that. Because Job's family was all dead except for his wife. And then Satan says, well, let me affect his health. Now, I'm not going to kill him, but let me affect his health. So he sends boils to Job's life. And so, I mean, if you think about the worst zit you've ever had in your entire life and multiply it by all of your entire body, and every one of them is just like massive, and you're just sore all over. This is Job. This is Job. And he still doesn't curse God in the midst of all that. In fact, Job's wife comes to him and says the words to him. She says, Job, curse God and die. That is not helpful advice. And that's one thing you should not do if a friend of yours is suffering. Don't tell him to curse God and die. The next thing that happens is Job's friends, he has three friends that come to his aid, and they are right to come to him and to be present with him in his suffering. But then they start talking. And that's where it starts to go south. And so two of his friends basically say to him that Job got what he deserved, right? They're trying to find reasons for, okay, why is he suffering? There must be a reason why. I mean, this kind of thing doesn't just happen to anybody. So he must have done something wrong, and he got what he deserved. He had it coming to him, which is also not very helpful. Then the third friend went even further, and he said, not only did you get what you deserved, Job, but you got less than you deserved. I mean, the fact that you're still alive is only a result of God's grace in your life. Now, that might be partly true, but it's also not helpful when someone's in the middle of suffering to try to figure out why. Why are they suffering? And so with that, I want you to discuss questions one through four. Go ahead and discuss one to four, and we'll reconvene in just a moment. Go ahead and discuss...
Okay, even though, even though I know I just said that trying to answer the question why when someone is suffering is not helpful, because the entire book of Job is an example of what not to do when someone suffers. So trying to answer the, Job's friends are trying to answer the question why for Job, why he's going through suffering, and understand the, the motive behind that, but answering that question is not the most helpful thing to do when someone is suffering. But with that said, I want to spend a little bit of time this morning talking about why we suffer, so you can have this in the back of your mind, because here's the deal. At some point, that is a conversation you should have with a friend who's suffering. Now, maybe not right away, but at some point, that should be a conversation that happens, or a place you can show them in Scripture, like, here's some, some passages I can give you as a friend that, that I think God wants you to see as you go through all this. And so we're going to look at James chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there. And we can turn the house lights up just a little bit because it seems like really dark in here and it kind of depresses me. So I want to see your, your bright. There we go. I just got happier. There we go. All right, James 1, verses uh, 2 to 4. And so what I'm not suggesting that you do is go to a friend who's suffering, like in the midst of suffering, and be like, here, James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, that you just bust out Scripture like it's some kind of a, you know, spiritual grenade in their life. So look at verse 2, and it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So I think it's interesting that the Bible actually tells us why people suffer. I think most would walk around and say things like, you know, we don't really know why people suffer. It's a mystery, and we're not quite sure why God has people suffer, but that's just the way it is. And I'm, I'm like, well, I understand what you're saying, but God tells us why in Scripture, why we suffer. And so I want to look at that and read that and understand what it means and James 1 helps us understand why people suffer. And here's what it says. I want to take it just phrase by phrase. It's count it all joy. Now, joy does not mean surface-level happiness. Joy does not mean you're walking around with a fake expression on your face at all times because that's what you're supposed to do. That is not joy. It's possible to be joyful while there's still tears in your eyes. It's possible to be joyful even while you're in the midst of some unhappy times in your life. And so this is not surface-level happiness, but it is a deep, abiding joy, knowing who is sovereign, knowing who is in charge, knowing that God is in control no matter what is happening in your life. This does not also mean that you are joyful for trials, but that you are joyful in trials. In other words, if you get in a car accident, your car's totaled, you don't jump out and be like, woohoo, all right, you know. God, how about some cancer? Bring me some cancer. Come on, bring it on, you know. Like, this does not mean that you're, like, begging God for more suffering, but it does mean that whatever happens to you, that you are joyful in the midst of that, and you are considering it all joy in spite of the fact that you're going through some very, very difficult times. He also says, when you meet trials of various kinds, this means you're going to encounter all kinds of trials, all kinds of different trials. 
I think sometimes Christians expect only certain kinds of trials, things like, God, give me trials that are only a result of me suffering for my faith. In other words, give me the kind of trials that bring me glory at how great of a Christian I am. So if I'm at school proclaiming the name of Jesus and people curse at me for that, that's a trial I'll take because it's for your glory, Jesus, but please don't give me cancer. Please don't give me a car wreck. I don't see the point of that. There's no purpose behind that. And so you're going to encounter all kinds of trials, and Christians aren't exempt from any of them. We're not. I know that for most of us, we think that because you're walking with Jesus, that means that certain things are not going to happen to you, and it is not the case. Scripture is proof of that. He also says, in verse 3, he says, for you know that the testing of your faith. So he's, it's like he's saying, I know y'all know this, but I'm just going to remind you, because what happens when you suffer is you start to forget things like this. You start to forget why God might be doing it. And he's saying to these people, I know you know this. I know you know it intellectually. But I want you to know it down here, that what you're going through is going to produce patient endurance in you. And so suffering produces patient endurance. It's steadfastness. It's this, it's this idea that what you're going through is going to remind you who to cling to. The way I would define suffering is this. Suffering is God's way of stripping us of our idolatry. That's really what it comes down to, because even, even people in your life can be idolatrous. And so suffering is God's way of stripping us down of, of all of our idolatry, and, 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 and you recognize when you go through all that that if you can endure through that and cling to Jesus in the midst of suffering, that your faith is, is, uh, is brought to completion. So the second thing that suffering produces is completion. Suffering produces completion. So steadfastness is the first thing, and then that leads to you being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, and it, and it produces completion in you. When you suffer, listen to this. When you suffer, it feels like something is being taken from you. But James says that something is being added to you as you suffer. Not taken from, but added to. I'm sure many of you guys can attest to this. You can attest to the idea that when you've gone through suffering in your life, that has been the time where in a weird way, you find that Scripture has more traction in your life in that moment. You, you find that something that was not there before is being added to your life even as a result of the suffering. One of the most difficult times for me in my life was once I graduated college and a relationship ended for me that I thought could be the one, and it wasn't. And I had no job. I had no direction. Like, what am I going to do, God? And I thought this was the girl, and she's not the girl. And I was just in this weird six-month spot of just almost like depression, not knowing what was next. But at the same time, I felt this, this presence of God that I'd never felt before. At the same time, I felt like I could trust God in a way that I'd never trusted him before. I felt like I could, I was close to God in that moment because I had to depend on him. I needed him. 
there was a need there for him. And there was, in, in a sense, it felt like my life was more complete as a result of the suffering in spite of the fact that it felt like there was something being, being taken from me rather than added to me. The second passage we look at is 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 12. Go ahead and turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses uh, 7 to 10, it says this. This is Paul writing. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So Paul is someone who was persecuting Christians before he became a Christian. Then he becomes a Christian. And here's what God does to him. Look at verse, uh, back in verse 7. It says, a thorn was given me in the flesh. This is not a literal thorn. It's a metaphor. What it means is that there was something that was given to Paul. We're not quite sure what it was. Some think it was like bad eyesight. Some think it was physical disease, whatever it might be. Um, He was given some kind of an affliction, and he calls it a messenger of Satan to harass me. That's what Paul called it, which is a great way of looking at it. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited. How amazing is it that Paul knew why he had this issue? I mean, I don't know if God told him this, where God just said, look, Paul, there's a real good chance that you're going to become really cocky and arrogant. So I'm going to do this for you so that it will keep you a little humble so you don't get arrogant. Because it says, as a result, because of the surpassing greatness of, of the revelation. So Paul's getting all these revelations from God. He's been chosen by God to write large portions of the New Testament. And and so you can imagine that he's going to struggle with being a little bit conceited about that, right? I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, think about the things that you think are great in your life, the things that you boast about. I mean, you guys win a swim meet and you're like, oh, look at me. Look at me, right? I mean, Paul's writing scripture, Paul is chosen by God to write scripture. Paul is seeing things that no one else is seeing in Revelations. So you can imagine the the struggle he might have with some pride and some arrogance. And so to keep him humble, God gives him this thorn in the flesh to make sure he doesn't become conceited as a result of what he's seeing from God. And then look down at verse uh, 8. It says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me meaning the affliction. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that last statement, I think, is so powerful. He says, it's in my weakness. It's when I feel like I have nothing left to give. It's when I'm suffering. That's when I feel like God strengthens me and lifts me up. And here's the reality, is that you cannot feel that unless you have the weakness, right? It's impossible to feel that in your successes. It's impossible to feel that when things are going along as you planned, It's impossible to feel like God's doing that in your life unless you go through some kind of trial or suffering. And so I want you to see from this passage that suffering produces dependence. And I'm not sure how else God would get you to depend on him unless he put you through some kind 
of trial or suffering because the default position for me and you is never dependence, right? We, we never do that naturally. And so God brings things at times, thorns in the flesh, into our life to produce dependence upon him. And he does it to us. Now, I want to get into some application here. So um, the question you guys raised was, how do I really help when a friend suffers? And so I want you to flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So flip back to the first chapter of this book, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. And it says in verse 3 of chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That sounds like a confusing passage. Let me explain that to you briefly. When you and I have been forgiven by Jesus, it empowers us to forgive other people. And when you and I have been comforted by Jesus, it empowers us to comfort other people. The comfort that God gives to you in your life should never be a dead end, but should be a vessel that's given to other people as well. God's comfort should flow through you. You should be a vessel of God's comfort. You should not be a, a comfort dead end where you say, okay, thanks, God. Thanks for your comfort, God. But it should lead to you wanting to comfort other people that have gone through similar trials and afflictions. How many of you have, have felt yourself when, when someone else has gone through what you've gone through in your life, you have felt yourself wanting to talk to them. You have felt yourself, I want to talk to them because they've been through what I've gone through. That's, that's biblical. That's in the Bible. Because God says, you've, you've gone through what you've gone through, and God has brought you comfort so that you can go and comfort other people in the midst of whatever they're going through. And so the first thing I want you to see is very simply, when someone's going through trials and difficulties, what do you do? You comfort. You, you're a comfort to them. And you let whatever you've gone through be the fuel that gives you the courage to comfort them and whatever they're going through. You, you be a comfort to them. And so Jesus comforts us so we can comfort other people. And the, I think the problem, though, is that many in the room, I'm not sure that you see, you really truly see God as a comfort, though. I think some are sitting here this morning, and you don't see God as, that, as, as a comforting God. You see God as, a, as an evil God. You see God as a God that's not good. You see these trials and suffering you've gone through. You see these things as, man, I'm angry at God for that. And I understand that reaction. We even see that reaction in, with David in the Psalms at times. It's okay to have that initial reaction, but if that's where you stay, then it becomes sinful because you're not seeing God with with reality in mind. You're not seeing him as the true God that he really is. And so this verse needs to let you know that God is a God of comfort. Whatever you're going through in your, in your life, God is the one, the primary one that can bring you comfort in the midst of that. We just found out about a month ago that um, my son Layden has to have uh, eye surgery. And what's happening with his eye is the same thing that happened to me when I was four years old. I was four years old and my left eye started to go what they call lazy. It was sort of drift off out this way. And it happens to a lot of kids um, at that age. And, um, 
And even now, I had surgery when I was four years old, but even now, if I'm looking at you for a long time, it can start to drift if I let it. And so I look at it as a positive thing. My eyes like, like to multitask, you know, and uh, I can do two things at once. So, um, but my son has an even more severe case of this, and his eyes turn inward, and the right one turns in really far if he's looking at something up close. And so I uh, met with a surgeon this past week, and he's going to have surgery probably in April sometime on, on both eyes. And it's not really a huge deal. It's a pretty common thing. But when my, when my, when my wife first told him about surgery, she said, Landy, you know, we're going to have you go to the hospital in about a month or so, and, and they're going to um, do surgery, and um, they're going to put you to sleep, and they're going to fix your eye. And, and he just started crying. And I'm thinking, I didn't think he'd react. I thought he would just be like, okay, I want to go watch cartoons, you know. And, uh, but he has this reaction. And so we go to the surgeon the other day, and, uh, and he starts getting upset when they're putting the eye drops in to dilate his eyes. And so I walked over to him and just, you know, grabbed his hand and said, look, you know, I've, I understand where you're at. I've been right where you sit, and, and I, I want to comfort you. And so I kind of held his hand during the rest of the exam, and he was fine after that. But it's helpful to know that someone else has been where you've been. It's helpful to know that someone else has gone through what you've gone through. And when you've experienced those kinds of things, you can help someone, and you can stand in a place of credibility with them, and you can comfort them because you've been comforted in that way. So the question is, how do we comfort? How do we really practically do that? And I want to give you five things this morning. The first thing I want you to see is, is visit them. Go to them. So if someone that you know is struggling and they need comfort, then visit them. Do not avoid them. So about a year ago when this girl lost her mother, I was sitting watching a football game when I heard that she lost her mother, and I knew, I don't know this girl really well, but I need to go. I need to go to the, I don't know who they are besides the girl, but I need to go and just be with them for a little bit. And so you go to them. You don't avoid people because they're suffering. You go to them when they suffer. I had a student a while back, um, this is like several years ago, and there was a kid who was killed in a car wreck that was not really part of the church here, but a friend of his went to our church. And I said, hey, are you going to go to his funeral? And he said, man, I don't do funerals. And I just thought, how lame is that? Like, you just want to avoid people when they suffer. Yeah, I don't do funerals. I, just don't, I don't get into that kind of stuff. It's just too depressing. Yeah, it is depressing. But they need you in the midst of this time. They need you. The second thing is pray with them. Not just say, yeah, yeah, I'll pray for you, but to actually pray with them. Actually do it, like right there on the spot. The third thing is listen to them. Let them talk to you. Don't get preachy. This is the time when the, the, the wound is still fresh and they need someone that's just going to listen to them. Let them cry in front of you and you be okay with that. Don't get preachy. Don't bust out James 1 when you first meet with them. The sermons might come later on. And, and don't tell them how the same thing happened to you right off the cuff, all right? That might be helpful later on, but just right off the cuff, don't be like, let me tell you about what happened to me, and then make it all about yourself. Don't get preachy with them. Fourthly, provide for them. This is meeting very practical needs with someone that's going through suffering. This is why when someone uh, dies in the family that many people will, will bring food to that family just to help them with their needs because that's what they need to have done for them right now. So the family that lost their house in a fire last week, what do we do? 
We can comfort by giving them what they need. We provide for them financially, materially. And then lastly, remember them. That's one of the biggest ones because what happens so often is people forget and people just think, yeah, I went to their house once. I called them once. But then people forget about them and that's it. Remember them. Follow up with them when this thing, these things happen to them. I want you to look at Proverbs chapter 25, verse 20 for a couple more things here. 25, verse 20, it says, Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. And what this verse is saying is that we've got to have emotional understanding when you're dealing with someone who's gone through suffering. So, for example, if your friend, if it's freezing outside and your friend's wearing a jacket, you're not going to walk up to them and, like, peel the jacket off their body and be like, ha-ha, right? That's just not what, I mean, some of you might do that, but it's not going to be helpful to them. Or think about, um, has anyone done the experiment when you're a kid, like you make the little volcano and you put the, the soda and you put the, um, the vinegar together and it explodes? You, everyone's done that before, right? Well, um, that happens because those two things don't mix very well. They cause an explosion, and so both of these things are depicting like a reaction, like you're going to get a bad reaction if you do these things to someone in the same way that if someone is depressed, they've got a heavy heart, they're um, down in the dumps, you don't show up and be like, well, hey, it's okay because I got the Justin Bieber CD. Let's go, let's go play the Justin Bieber CD. That'd be depressing anyway. But... You don't have that reaction because you don't sing songs to a heavy heart. You comfort that person. You don't pretend like it's not, that's not where they're at because that is where they're at. And so you've got to have emotional understanding with someone who's going through suffering and be emotionally sensitive and mature about it. And then the last passage this morning is Romans chapter 12, verse 15, where it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You need to feel what someone else is feeling. And this does not mean that you just sort of pretend, like throw water on your face and be like, oh, I'm crying for you, you know. This is not what's being depicted here, but it means that you realize that you're so closely connected in community in the body of Christ that you realize that, that you're a part of them. That because they're a Christian, you're a Christian, you have Christ in common, you've got everything in common, and so because of that, um, you feel their pain, you sense their pain, you, you empathize with them, you feel what they're feeling because of that connection. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine uh, in my living room, he sat there with me and he said, um, we're doing Bible study together. He said, uh, my parents are getting divorced. And he just starts weeping. And it's just me and him talking. And he just starts weeping. This is not a guy that I've seen weep really ever before this. And in that moment, it's like I started getting emotional because he's getting emotional. I'm like, man, this has got to be hard for this kid to go through. And I start getting emotional as a result of him. And the reason for that, I didn't turn a switch on, it's like, okay, time to start crying. You know, it's not what happened. But because he's a part of the body of Christ, I'm part of the body of Christ, we feel what someone else is feeling because we're that connected. And so you weep with those who weep as a result of that. And the reason why we do all of this, guys, is to display Jesus because this is what Jesus does for us. He is the God of comfort. So you need to be a person who comforts because that's what Jesus does. Go ahead and discuss your last few questions at your table. Go ahead and discuss.
and close out by praying at your tables.